I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. In today's episode, I talk about solidarity and unity. What is our Catholic responsibility during this time of division? I don't know if it's too soon or not. I was going to make a joke about COVID, but I decided against it because it will take two weeks just to find out if you got it or not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 82 of the Man of Food for Thought podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you're not, please rate and review this podcast. Um, It helps other people find it. Share this episode with a friend. That's the highest compliment you can pay to us. Tag us on Instagram at Man of Food for Thought. And if you'd like to support us for as little as a dollar a month, you can go to our website, manoffoodforthought.com, and click on our Patreon tab, and then explore our website, all our great blogs and podcast episodes. Good to be back with you. Got a lot to talk about. I am fired up for this episode. But let's start with a peak pit and plug. So my peak of the week is, um, I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever shouted out my intern, Katie, um, at my parish, but Katie, you are awesome, and um, you do so much for me to make my life easier, and I just wanted to say thank you, because you have been making my day many days these past few weeks, um, just your, your dedication, and I'm just so appreciative. Um, also it was my birthday a few days ago, um, November 7th. And, um, it was probably the best birthday I've ever had to tell you the truth. Um, it, it was just so great to feel like myself again. A lot of different things caused that to happen, but my wife just, um, really just pulled out all the stops for us to have kind of an at-home birthday, but still be connected to people. And so many people made a really intentional effort to show me that they cared. Um, and you know, to tell you the truth, I I haven't really been feeling like me for a long time and a lot of my friends have stuck around and really on my birthday I feel like they gave me the gift of me back and um, I'm just so grateful for that so especially grateful for Jesse and Tony and Jenna obviously and uh, Natalie and Justine and Izzy um, all of you guys and my wife of course um, really pulled out the stops um, for my birthday and I'm just I'm so grateful to you. And all the rest of you who wish me happy birthday um, and made videos and things, I'm just, I'm so grateful. So, big peaks this past week. Uh, Pitt is yesterday, November 10th, the McCarrick Report came out. And it was a report we were all expecting, expecting about the scandal surrounding Cardinal McCarrick and abuse allegations that um, have spanned decades uh, against him. And that were apparently brought to the attention of St. Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI while in office, um, as well as some notable cardinals um, and bishops, and nothing was really done. I mean, things were done, but McCarrick had a way of kind of weaseling out of these things, and so it was very discouraging to see... um, people that are so admired and so praised for certain things not having the wherewithal to really care about um, these allegations or take them seriously. Um, And, you know, I think it relates to our episode today because we're talking about unity. We'll talk about the common good and solidarity and really, um, you know, Pope Francis, whether you like him or not, he has done more than any other pope. Um, I think it's just completely obvious in terms of healing that bridge between victims and abuse, um, you know, and we're gonna talk about a little bit the plug that I have this week, um, which is I watched the documentary Francesco, as I told you I was going to in the last episode. 
And let me tell you, it was so good. Um, all this hubbub about his statement about civil unions, it was placed in the film out of the context it was originally said. And so I get why people kind of thought that he was saying something that he wasn't. But it was literally like a three-minute segment of this almost two-hour documentary about the gospel being lived and new people like marginalized people, oppressed people being ministered to by the church through Pope Francis. And what a beautiful, um, just testament to his papacy so far it was in my opinion. And so I don't know if, if you, if you watch that and your main concern was the statement about civil unions, um, I think you've completely lost sight of the gospel message. I'm sorry. I just think like, it's important to have clarity. Yes. And to define what the church teaches when it feels like that is being presented by the media in a false way. But I think if you had watched this, that would have been the last thing I think that had come to the surface of your mind. You know, you probably would have been like, Oh, that was weird. What did he mean by that? But I was just so overwhelmed and overtaken by, um, just this, this solidarity, this, you know, fraternal brother and sisterhood, that is completely aligned with uh, Fratelli Tutti, which our last episode was about, which I'll reference a little bit again in this episode, and was really lacking in the hierarchy of the church with those who had claimed abuse um, in the McCarrick Report. And so people like Archbishop Vagano, who people are all about, some people are all about, especially more traditional Catholics. Um, I don't, I think he's kind of rude and oversteps his bounds quite a bit but um you know he is a, a shepherd of the church and he is very wise and i've read some of his writings and been like wow that was really well crafted and well said and he's very convicted in a lot of his beliefs which is good but it is clear that he directly did not do things that were asked of him that could have even earlier circumvented what was going on with mccarrick and could have brought this to a close sooner um so anyways, um, yeah, so that was a big pit, but that, as I said, my plug, that documentary and, and all the content of this episode today has really been kind of carrying me on this really beautiful journey and exploration of solidarity in the midst of, um, this election. Um, it's been, it's been a couple, two weeks, y'all. It's been crazy. Um, we had an election. Some people are elated. Some people are not. And, um, I think, you know, let's get into this, you know, um, I think what's happening right now in the church is the same thing that happened during the time of Jesus and shortly thereafter. And it is a religious war between the Pharisees and the Zealots. Now, I would characterize those very extreme traditional Catholics um, as the Pharisees of our time. Not all of them. Uh, I don't want to demonize trad cats or traditional Catholicism because it is there are very many beautiful elements. But there's a certain rhetoric to a lot of people who... Um, align with that sort of uh, belief or practice in Catholicism that I think is very damaging. And on the other end, there's this kind of increasingly liberalized form of Catholicism that's very worldly and very um, unwilling to kind of stand up or clearly state the truth um, and is really ready to just like overthrow all of the structures, kind of this cancel culture reality that we see in the world. And that's really a zealot-like quality. And so there were these two, you know, warring groups, you could say, in, uh, in the Jewish church at the time of Jesus. The Pharisees were those who were in charge of the judicial system and the legal system of the religious hierarchy of the time. They um, kind of very oppressed people with the law and this oral law. They kind of added to the law, and you'll see people do that today um, who are kind of modern Pharisees. They'll add 
to what the church has said and, um, you know, things that were offered previously as pastoral guidance or as suggestions. They'll say this is authoritative church teaching when it's not. Uh, and it's a very oppressive type of, um, you know, doctrinal weight that is placed on other people when you do that. And on the other end, the zealots were a group that wanted to overthrow the Roman hierarchy. And it was as a result, were very upset with a lot of the Pharisees because of their alignment with a lot of those dangerous um, secular or worldly or institutionalized problems. And so you have kind of, you know, this right and left. And the problem with that was they were so focused on warring with one another that they created all of this social discord and Rome decided we're just going to come in and destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And they did that in the year 70 and there has never been a temple rebuilt and Judaism was um, not destroyed, obviously, but I think just radically wounded as a result of that. And <clears throat> I, I fear the same for the church because, you know, the devil has always been um, associated with Babylon, uh, which is, you know, um, what was associated with the Roman Empire at the time. And I think this is, you know, um, I don't know, it, it we're doomed to re repeat history, you know, if we don't learn from it. And I think there's probably been many times in the past centuries of the church since then where we've had this kind of back and forth. Hey, it maybe have, has never gone away. Uh, but I saw it come out and have seen it come out and continue to come out as a result of the election. I've seen so many Catholics on both sides now completely up in arms or completely elated because their candidate either lost or won or they think there's election fraud or they think that's ridiculous. And we have this whole not my president movement happening again. People don't realize they're just doing the same thing that they did last year that the other side did last year or last election. Um, but I think both of those postures being completely up in arms or completely elated are both mistakes. Our next president, whoever it is, will be operating from a party or a platform that is di in direct conflict with several components of church teaching and the gospel message. Regardless of who it is, that is a fact. If you look at the platform and then you look at the church teaching, now you may say, but Trump, no, there's no but Trump, there's but Jesus. But Jesus is the only one who is justified and is true in all of his teachings and all of who he is. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both imperfect humans with an imperfect party and an imperfect platform. And so if we are aligning all of our eggs or trying to kind of force them to fit the Catholic mode, and kind of be allow us to be accepting of everything that they stand for and just have this like almost militaristic support of either candidate that is a mistake that isn't that's you know i think we need to repent of idolatry if we're doing that as catholics our vote is not a blanket acceptance of one candidate or a blanket rejection of the other you could vote for things on either side. There are things in both party platforms that we can very well support as Catholics. But we cannot have a complete acceptance of every stance. And yes, there is a hierarchy of, of issues and things that are, are most pressing for us in our time. But the important thing I think for us to realize is they never completely align. Unless maybe you vote for like the American Solidarity Party, which I've been told is like the Catholic teaching put into a political party, but I think it gets like 200 votes a year or something. I don't know. Um, but um, 
you know, I, I, w- I was reminded of, of this when, um, and I think every candidate says this when they, when they win, but Biden and Harris were talking about um, saying that, you know, believing that they had won the election, that they're going to begin work on day one. I believe every candidate, you know, generally says that. They're not like, okay, come inauguration day, I'm going on a cruise, you know. But when I heard them say that as I was kind of watching some of the speeches, I was thinking, you know, work starts for us too on day one. So whether you voted for Biden and Harris or Trump and Pence or not, and whoever ends up coming out on top when all of these investigations and lawsuits are done, our responsibility is to champion and support the causes that that party has that aligns with the gospel and to advocate against those that do not. You can't just vote and then you're done. That is impossible as a Catholic. So if you have whined, complained, vented on social media at all in the past year or two about these issues surrounding the election, but you have not once contacted your local representative to advocate for the change you're apparently so passionate about, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? All you're doing is creating a social media echo chamber where you are at the center and the issue that you apparently care so much about is not at the center and there's nothing any of your listeners or your followers can do about it other than congratulate you or give you an opportunity to debate debate so your pride can be fueled or whatever it may be. Like, knock it off. I, I, I just, I don't get it. No matter how upset or excited you are, In four years, this will all be happening again. There is already a king. His name is Jesus. And he has called us to a particular mission that we need to follow. Someone who I I really admire, Ryan McQuaid, he, um, I've met him several times. He's a great guy. And he um, posted something on Instagram on his story that kind of went viral among all the people I follow, which is not that many, but I'm sure it you know, was bigger than that. And he said, uh, you know, he'd been praying about the fact that voting is not a work of mercy. Yes, we are called to vote and participate in society, but we still then have to go out and feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, shelter the homeless, clothe the naked, you know, do the corporal and spiritual works of, of mercy, instruct the ignorant, admonish the sinner, comfort the sorrowful, um, you know, uh, pray for the living and the dead, all those things. We have a responsibility as Catholics to participate in society for the common good, but our fundamental responsibility is to love our neighbor as ourself, to live those works of mercy, to live the gospel. A politician or a party cannot save us. They cannot heal us or they cannot, and they cannot com- completely fix the wounds that ail us as a world and as a society, as a nation. Only Jesus can do that. So if you're a Catholic listening to this, please hear me. If you have posted or talked more about the election than you have preached the gospel or talked about Jesus, either in person or online, I invite you to please, with me, repent of that idolatry. I wish I see so many Catholics, Catholic speakers, who I used to respect, who I used to really want to be like. And all I want to do is just look them in the face and say, I wish you were as passionate about preaching the word as you were about preaching your support of Trump or of Biden. I wish. And I I think some of them have just conflated the two to where they think like, no, these are the same exact thing. And it's like, no, it doesn't matter who, what candidate you stand for. Like the... Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division between father and mother and, and or whatever, you know, I'm paraphrasing. And not that he wants us to be divided, but he recognized in saying that the context is the message that he has to share is one that does not align with the world. It will bring persecution. It will bring questions. It will bring tensions and debates and difficulties. We cannot just amalgamate them with whatever the political persuasion that we're attracted to of the time is. 
The world is not saved by your rants and your posts. So for all those of you who have interacted, um, for those of you who have interacted with Catholics during this election process, um, and I want Catholics, I want you to think about this. For all those who have interacted with a Catholic during this election process, do you think more people have converted to the church or have left it as a result of the rhetoric used by Catholic bishops, speakers, influencers, whoever? I unequivocally think more people have left. Yet COVID may have made uh, glaringly obvious a reality uh, that is happening of people not coming back to church, but that was a reality that was already happening. The election further amplified it. So regardless of your opinion about any of it, if you are a Catholic, you are some percent culpable, some percent responsible, either in the ways that you spoke or the ways you failed to speak, myself included. The world is not going to be saved in 160 characters or less. No one is converted by emotionally fueled blanket statements that are riddled with logical fallacies and lack an ounce of critical thinking. In fact, it does a disservice to the long-standing academic and well-researched argumentative and teaching um, pedagogy the church has championed for centuries. We are meant to be the Aquinases of the world. And instead, we just spew fallacies on Twitter. And I want to bring this back to Fratelli Tutti, something that Pope Francis says in paragraph 200, one of my favorite paragraphs of this document. Dialogue is often confused with something quite different. The feverish exchange of opinions on social networks, frequently based on media information that is not always reliable. These exchanges are merely parallel monologues. They may attract some attention by their sharp and aggressive tone, but monologues engage no one and their content is frequently self-serving and contradictory. I was talking to my spiritual director about this the other day, and we're talking about solidarity. And he said, you know, solidarity is important, but you cannot have solidarity without subsidiary. So what do those words mean? Solidarity is this thing we're called to as Catholics. It's part of the social teaching of the church that we're meant to see all as brothers and sisters in the world. Uh, and to recognize that we can empathize with their experiences, to pray for them, to fast for them, and to seek the common good for all. And that has a very outward, very global perspective that I think tends to drive us towards social media. However, you cannot have solidarity without subsidiarity, which means without the smaller components that make it up, without the small communities, the families that make it up. And so if you are going online and saying all of this, but you're not willing to have these conversations with your local representative, with your family, with your friends, um, and really engage in dialogue with them and not just spew out like a media post or just share an article, but actually sit down and listen to the other person's intentions, desires, worries, anxieties, and beliefs, and receive them and ask questions about them to understand them, not to pick them apart then you are doing this wrong. I mean, you're doing this, I think, for yourself. And I can fall into this trap just as easy as anyone else, but I think I've become glaringly obvious. It's become glaringly obvious to me over this past year that it is just not the gospel. My absolute favorite quote of Fratelli Tutti, one line, paragraph 231, great changes are not produced behind desks or in offices. Great changes are not produced behind desks or in offices. I didn't realize the pun there, you know, with the desk in the Oval Office and the office of president there. But I mean, for us, you know, like great change is not going to happen um, on a Twitter post. You know, that's very self-serving. 
I comment all the time that if Twitter didn't have or social media didn't have likes, comments, and shares, no one would use it. Why is that? Well, there's obviously a self-serving part of it. In fact, I think that's most of it. And um, I don't know, I've been reading this book. I just, um, I'm about to finish it. It's called Three Marriages. And it's about the um, marriages or the vows that we make with, um, you know, our relationships, our work, and ourself. Um, and there's a quote in it. Um, the author, David White, who's a poet, brilliant author, um, says this. Life can find you only if you are paying real attention to something other than your own concerns. If you can hear and see the essence of otherness in the world. If you can treat the world as if it is not just a backdrop to your own journey. If you can have a relationship with the world that isn't based on triumphing over it or complaining about it. I was reading that and I was, you know, inspired by this kind of very St. Francis quality. And he brought up some other authors like Wordsworth who just had this, this quality of being able to notice big things or notice God in the small things, in the small moments. Um, he quotes Newton, I, be, I believe Isaac Newton. Um, we focus on the inconsequential tasks and make them into the big things instead of seeing the big meaning in the seemingly insignificant small things all around us. And so I was reading all of that and I was sitting outside on this little park bench that we kind of had made in, in our back patio and I was pushing my daughter on the swing. And I had this kind of mystical experience where I just started seeing handprints everywhere. And there were handprints on all the things that I owned. And I, I came to understand them as I was like, why am I seeing this kind of, you know, this kind of spiritual experience? They were the handprints of all the people that had touched those items and made them. The people who had, you know, made the, the, the bench. You know, I was sitting on a bench. I knew the man who made it because I was talking to him on Etsy. His name's Vince. And I was thinking about Vince and like the work and the time and the effort and his life that was poured in a little bit of into that creation that I was enjoying. And then I had this image of the people, um, you know, my house was built in the 70s. The people, um, gosh, 45 years ago, uh, with their coolers at lunchtime, sitting in the, the building that I live in when it was just studs and talking about life and making jokes and doing work. And just thinking about the fact that everything I use, everything I do, everything I touch every day contains a piece of someone else's life, experience, work, existence, that I am so intimately connected to other people. Whatever device you're listening to this on, think about how many people had to come together to make that. How many people's lives converged at the right time for you to enjoy that? The, whether you're in the car right now or at the gym or you know wherever you are, look around. Everything that you have was created by someone else. And in a sense, you are connected to them in that. You know, what if, what if we had the sense of solidarity, the sense of brotherhood that saw that? That every time we sat down in a chair, we prayed for the people that made it and designed it. What if every time we went into a coffee shop, we not only prayed for the barista and the people who work there, but the people who made all of the ingredients, the people who built the building. If we just had a sense of that connection and that, you know, we are journeying into a part of their passion, their work into their space. I think we would have a heart that was more open to dialogue, more open to encounter. Because when we can visualize that, and then we can recognize that Christ himself dwells in all of those people and things simultaneously, God himself is there, then we will always be able to recognize God in the dignity of the other. 
and have that culture of encounter, really seeking to understand our brother or sister and not just spew hate or anger on the internet because we think it's going to make a difference. Yes, we need to share truth. And yes, maybe if you've been given a lot of followers and you are an influencer of sorts, then maybe you feel a responsibility to do that. But solidarity cannot exist without subsidiary. What are you going and doing yourself? And why are you not using that platform to instead preach proportionally the gospel and not just this issue? That is another thing I was talking about with my spiritual director was preaching the gospel with proportionality. I think sometimes we get so focused on a particular issue and this is true of people who would classify themselves as social justice warriors, true of people who would classify themselves as people really concerned with liturgy and that worship is correct. I'm talking people on both sides of this Pharisee zealot um, church reality that we live in the middle of right now. But we we're talking about the fact that in Evangelii Gaudium, um, Pope Francis writes that we need to preach the gospel with proportionality. Um it says in paragraph 38, it needs to be said that in preaching the gospel, a fitting sense of proportion has to be maintained. This would be seen in the frequency with which certain themes are brought up and in the emphasis given to them in preaching. For example, if in the course of the liturgical year, a parish priest speaks about temperance 10 times, but only mentions charity or justice two or three times, an imbalance results. And precisely those virtues which ought to be most present in preaching and catechesis are overlooked. And so basically what Pope Francis is saying here is if we look at Jesus and his life and what he preached most about, we should preach most about those things. And if he didn't preach about things or mention them only rarely, then we should preach about them, but in proportion. We should preach about them when that occasion arises, but not let them outweigh or overwhelm or overshadow the core message, which is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that there is a Savior who has come to save us from our sins and is calling us to extend that, that message of mercy to all people. And extend that love by providing for not only that spiritual need that we all share, but the physical needs of our brothers and sisters who are poor, oppressed, marginalized. That is what it is about. That connection. And so... I was having that experience, thinking about all these things, and I came upon in this book, this poem by David White. It is called, Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity, the stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing, even as it pours you a drink. 
The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. If we had that type of connection, that type of seeing an opportunity in even the smallest moments to pay attention, to engage in life, to encounter the other in all that we do, we would not be in the situation. We wouldn't. I think that pride has soaked into our church. And it is always, it's a capital sin. It's, you know, it's always going to be part of it. But it's become so visible in public because of social media, because of an election, because of COVID and everyone being home and being on the internet for, far more often than they should. I hope eventually we have licenses for social media, like driver's licenses. Like, you need to learn how to use this before you have permission. Anyway, um, Matt Zemanek, president, 2024. Never in a million years. Um, anyways, um, I just think that's something we need to think about. And so a saint that I think that embodies this is St. Oscar Romero. He was a very controversial saint, um, but I think very important for this conversation. And the church granted uh, his ability to become a saint, so they probably think he's pretty dope and important. So he lived um, within the, the last century. He was born in, in 1917 on August 15th, right in the middle of World War One, And he died on March 24th in 1980 at the age of 62 which is his feast day march 24th he born he was born lived and died in el salvador and he's the patron saint of persecuted christians and christian communicators uh, requests have also been made to make him a doctor of the church because he contributed to um a doctor of the church is someone who com- contributed substantially to the theology of the church and he's known for something called liberation theology which has been taken into a lot of extreme directions by others um, but there is something to be learned there about our liberation from sin and how we can liberate one another um, both from physical things and spiritual things Um, so he had five brothers and two sisters he went to school only um, for what was available which was grades one through three and then he had a tutor until he was 13. His father trained him as a carpenter, awesome Joseph Jesus type of relationship there, um, wanted him to learn that trade, but he wanted to become a priest. So he entered minor seminary at 13, and he only left for a couple months when his mother became pregnant, and he wanted to help um, and get money, so he worked in the gold mines with his brothers. Um, but he went back, he graduated, and went to the National Seminary, which is probably the equivalent of our actual version of a seminary, Um And he graduated with honors, but he had to wait a year until he reached the minimum age for ordination. So he was uh, ordained in 1942 in Rome at only the age of 24 years old. He stayed there to get his doctorate, but he was called back home early and was actually detained in Cuba because of political tensions and I think some misunderstandings at the time. Um, But he was very outspoken against injustice. He did radio sermons. He gained uh, quite a bit of a following. And he even received a Vatican-issued condemnation of the right-wing extremist group in San Salvador at the time because of some of his work with that. So he was seen as a social conservative when he was appointed archbishop um, in 1977. But his friend um, and fellow priest Rutilio Grande was uh, murdered a few weeks after his appointment. And subsequently... um, he, Oscar Romero, developed into an outspoken social activist. He spoke out against poverty, social injustice, these assassinations and torture that were happening amid this war between left and right-wing forces in the government. Sound familiar? In 1980, Romero was assassinated while celebrating Mass in the chapel 
of the Hospital of Divine Providence. Um, no one was ever convicted for the crime. Investigations by the, the UN uh, Truth Commission for El Salvador concluded that the extreme right-wing politician, uh, Roberto Dabucion, had given the order for that to happen. Um, Romero had been delivering a... Um, um, a, it was a gathering of priests, and he gathered and delivered a, um, a, a homily, a sermon um, on reflecting on the priesthood for him and some fellow priests. And as soon as he finished the sermon, he stepped away, took a few steps at the center of the altar, and a car, a red car, drove up um, to the front of the chapel on the street. A man emerged from the vehicle with a gun and shot him once or twice. Um, and he was assassinated. So he was buried March 30th in 1980 in San Salvador, and it was attended by a quarter of a million mourners from all over the world. A fellow cardinal, Cardinal uh, Corpio y Ahumada, speaking at his uh, funeral as the delegate of Pope John Paul II at the time, said in his eulogy that he was a beloved peacemaking man of God and that um, his blood will give fruit to brotherhood, love, and peace. At the funeral, uh, during the ceremony, there were smoke bombs exploding in the streets. Um, there was subsequent stampeding and gunfire, and no one really knew, but they think that it was probably a um, something orchestrated by the government um, to um, create hysteria and to kind of move these people away. So um, there's this great prayer um, composed by Bishop Ken Untener that's basically, it's attributed to Oscar Romero, even though he never said it, because it just oozes him. And I'd like to close with that. A prayer of Oscar Romero. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way. An opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. Amen. Thank you for listening. Know that I am praying for you. We'd love your feedback on this episode. And until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. Bye.